0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
1: Los Angeles has a lot to sing about. It's America's second largest city and the most diverse. Nearly half the population is Hispanic or Latino. Its Silicon Beach has grown into a hub of innovative healthcare companies and tech giants. The rockets of Elon Musk's SpaceX are designed not far away from where the Beach Boys were formed. As the country considers the devastating consequences of two mass shootings on the 3rd and 4th of August, it's worth reflecting that California has among the strictest gun laws in the Union and among the lowest rates of firearm deaths. But the City of Angels also has its troubles. Around 1 in 10 homeless people in America are in the county of Los Angeles, and it's on the front line of climate change, coping with regular and catastrophic wildfires. On top of all that, the infrastructure hurdles of hosting the Olympic Games in 2028 lie ahead. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, is LA the model for a more diverse America? My guest today reflects the diversity of the city he runs. Eric Garcetti is the Mexican-American Jewish mayor of Los Angeles. Politics runs in his family. His father served as Los Angeles County's 40th District Attorney. Bill Clinton once joked that Garcetti might become president one day, although that might not happen for a while, as he's decided not to run in 2020. Eric Garcetti, welcome to The Economist Asks.
0: Wonderful to be with you. Thanks so much for having me.
1: A real pleasure. Now, we're talking in the aftermath of the mass shootings in El Paso and Ohio, and you've written on Twitter that you wanted to begin the healing with a more thoughtful conversation about how Americans can end this epidemic together. Start that conversation for me.
0: Well, I think after these sorts of incidents, we feel two things. One is just powerlessness. And then, of course, is heartbreak. And they go hand in hand. And one of them, my reminders is to not cede the power that you have just because your heart is broken. We have to remain absolutely impatient about these shootings and stopping these killings. But we also have to do the patient work of organizing, of passing legislation, of speaking up, of you know, walking next to a new generation of Americans that are really leading on this issue, our youth. And you know, whether it's action I took in Los Angeles to convene a youth council, a first big city mayor to do this, a youth council to... Uh, And gun violence or whether it's uh, calling on our national leaders uh, even when it seems like spitting into the wind you have to have that impatience and patience all at once.
1: And the suspect in the El Paso shooting had written the attack is a response he wrote to the Hispanic invasion of Texas. He also wrote about a cultural and ethnic replacement brought on by invasion. There's a Mexican-American mayor in charge of a largely Hispanic city but also someone who has written about extreme responses to immigration and internal migration in America. What is your response to that?
0: This one really hit me like a a punch to the stomach. Dayton, which there's no nexus of necessarily racism or anything like that, was where my great-grandmother fled Tsarist Russia to come to and settled. El Paso is where my Mexican grandfather, as a one-year-old baby, crossed over the border in my great-grandmother's arms during the Mexican Revolution. And I know both those mayors well, um, they're dear friends, and I know what it's like to be a mayor to get that. The worst part of being a mayor is that announcement that you've had somebody die, let alone that many people in your city. But the reason this hit me so hard was it not only goes against history because, of course, folks with Spanish surnames and Hispanic or Latino descent have lived in Texas longer than most non-Latinos, but it also showed me that this moment in which we feel that we've come so far in America There's been a space opened up for things to be said that we thought were long left behind. And while it's not solely at the feet of our president, it certainly has been aided and abetted by him, by technology, and by our own forgetfulness of educating each generation about what the American, full American story really is.
1: We've seen some Democratic candidates saying that President Trump has enabled the racist attacks with his language, uh, both with the suspect in, in El Paso, but also elsewhere. Do you agree with them?
0: I do. It's not solely the fault of the president of the United States. But when you launch a campaign talking about the Mexicans that are rapists and murderers, and maybe there's a few good ones coming, and that's the seed you plant for a campaign, you have to be responsible for some of the fruit that that plant bears. It is illogical not to connect those two things together. But, of course, individuals and their mental health histories and their own racism and prejudice that probably predated those pronouncements play into it. But he has opened up a space that it's okay to say things that the norms of the past said it was unacceptable to say and to believe. And, again, people who felt lonely and solitary about these things suddenly can find a community of enough people online that reaffirms their beliefs and that says everybody else saying something else is fake news. And so I think there is an aiding and abetting that goes on at the highest levels in our country. And I miss those days when, even when we disagree with things, you'd have people like George W. Bush speak out when there was clear crossings of lines of racism or atrocities like this. And now it's just our thoughts are with, the families, great response, law enforcement, and I'm out of here. That's my full responsibility, and I think that that is not leadership.
1: Do you think Donald Trump is a racist?
0: Um, Yeah, I mean, I used to say I think that he holds racist views, but I think the longer I listen to him, clearly he fits the textbook definition. He exercises his power uh, based on his position. He motivates his base or what he thinks his base is by bringing racist views. So if if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it is a duck.
1: Does it help to define him in these terms in the sense that it might be right or justified to do Mm -hmm. so but I think you've also sometimes been a bit critical about tendencies Mm on Democrats on the left on actually regardless of political where people come from as opponents just think if I put a sort of name on it if I put a bad label on him, I've kind of won the argument. That can also be a bit misleading. It's
0: it? certainly that's something that he's played on too. That um, you know they try to flip it around and what's real racism? It's the tax on me. And I think you have to, first of all, call it out. Secondly, you have to accept that this is something that lives inside everybody. It's part of, um, we do something with our police officers called implicit bias training. I remember talking to some officers that didn't want to go through this. What am I going to find out? I'm a racist. When they went through it, they're like, I learned so much about myself and my own prejudices. So on its face, I think all of us know we carry some of these feelings, but do you exercise power from them? And no, I think you know Donald Trump is about much more than his racism. But if you remain silent in the face of that, you too become complicit in what increasingly is acceptable to act upon and to say.
1: This is a big, complex subject, and we're not going to get to the, the bottom of all your thinking today, but what should America now be prepared to do about gun violence that hasn't been able oh. to do up to now? And of course, this is not the first president to be sending out messages of condolence after mass shootings.
0: So, so uh, this group of young people that I was talking about who are high school students in my own city who met with survivors from the Parkland uh Massacre, like David Hogue and others from March of Our Lives. I empowered them by saying, tell us what the message should be as young people, young Americans on gun violence. And they worked with a local advertising agency that volunteered their time and put a campaign together called Louder Than Guns that said, you know, gun violence is about more than one thing. There are the suicides and accidental shootings in the home. There are the kind of everyday violence in communities connected to gangs and youth. And then there's the mass school shootings. And sometimes the third or the mass shootings, like we saw this weekend, dominate everything, while that middle and first one take just as many, if not more, many more lives each year. And I think, first and foremost, it's to get those stories out there. Second, it's to demand at the local level... Um, leadership before we just fixate on Washington's inability to pass anything. And third, it is right when people say, oh, it's not just guns, which of course it is, but it's about mental health. Uh, So many of the problems we face from opioids to homelessness to gun violence really come from the fact that the United States... Doesn't take on mental health in the way it does physical health. You are lucky if you get any treatment. It's not early intervention. It's kind of you know it's stage four intervention if it were cancer, as opposed to preventative work. And I think all three of those things are critical for going to save lives. And one quick note: in Los Angeles, we've intervened in young people's lives for the last ten years with a program called uh, our Gang Reduction Youth Development Programs, where we. Prevent and intervene in violence and then teach families about that. And we've seen 40 to 50 percent drops in murder rates and shootings in parks that we open up late at night. And so oftentimes it is really about the community coming together and intervening much more earlier than waiting for the tragedy.
1: Let's broaden out our conversation. You are a walking Example of great LA diversity <laughs> with your <laughs> Jewish Mexican American heritage and a bit of uh, pre-revolutionary Russia oh, uh, thrown in there. Pastel <laughs> of um, It's an extraordinarily diverse city. Yes. In a way. that's if I had one thing I'd say. A global mm-hmm. brand for LA yes. would be it would be that. Uh, well, how does it benefit? Let's let's give you a chance to sell your city's wares first of all. Yes. How does the city benefit from diversity? And then we might come on to. What do you do with the challenges?
0: The future of of the world is uh, cultural literacy. And I feel so lucky to be from a city where, I don't know, by one count, there was three dozen countries that have their largest population outside the home country. It's the biggest Mexican city in the world after Mexico City, the biggest city of Canadians outside of Canada, of Thais, of Armenians. And so it allows you to have a competitive advantage being a native from LA going out in the world and vice versa to attract the best in the world to come to your city. 63% of our city is either immigrants or children of immigrants. And that doesn't even take migrants from inside the U.S. So we are well positioned at this moment that demands global fluency to benefit from that for the investments. So our business relations to attract things like the Olympics and Paralympics in 2028 to be one of the most visited cities in the world and now to be the third largest economy of any city after Tokyo and New York. So I think it's economic prosperity and most importantly it's social cohesion because you don't have to explain yourself to me if you come from a distant land. You probably already know LA because you've seen it in the movies and have an idea of this place which is marvelous. I
1: know it's just like that.
0: But we also know your food and we know your language and we can connect you with people who are just like you. So you can, I always say in LA you You can find somebody just like you and something you've never seen, both on the same block.
1: And one area where diversity, in a sense, is there, but also lags behind your aspiration is the gulf between the rich and poor in L.A. And it has grown despite this vast economic expansion and a a sense that the city, in many ways, is, is on the up and lots of new companies being set up there. But... In the end, the rich seem to be getting richer. Asset price inflation has benefited them. How much does that trouble you?
0: Oh, it's kind of the central reason why I'm a mayor and and why I was motivated to get into public life. I mean, Los Angeles's income is growing faster than the rest of the country. We've made college free. We raised the minimum wage. First real big city in America to do that to fifteen dollars an hour. And those things are helping address the problem. But we're such a successful city that. You know, successful cities in the world sometimes face more people than the infrastructure can accommodate. So on housing and on homelessness, you know, I always say we're in an imperfect paradise. Besides, you know, traffic and housing, we are doing amazingly well. And so those two things we have to solve if we're going to make it a livable city for those of us that are from there and continue to attract those best and brightest from around the world. Those are things I think we can do. We've passed the largest measures in our nation's history on both transportation at the local level and housing and homelessness. But as we know, you don't build a, a rail line in eight months. You don't build new apartments, you know, uh, overnight. But those investments hopefully will allow us to look back in you know, five, ten years from now and say we did the right thing to address these social inequities. Because a city can't survive by its peaks. It has to make sure those valleys come up.
1: One of the key issues in L.A. is homelessness. There are around 36,000 homeless people in your city. What have you learned about that problem since you've become mayor?
0: I've worked on this issue of homelessness since I was 14 years old, volunteering in an area of uh, downtown Los Angeles called Skid Row. I sometimes think about what would the 14-year-old Eric Garcetti tell the 48-year-old Eric Garcetti Mm. today, or vice versa. How could I explain to that teenager that this would still be there? And, you know homelessness is the most complicated public policy issue I think I will ever deal with in my life because it's the conspiracy of everything from sexual and domestic violence to our foster care system to our criminal justice system to our veterans coming home from war to the price of our apartments to our wages to our mental health problems and opioid crisis I mean they all conspire together and if you simplify it's really trauma together with high rents and so to me the two things we need to do and we're Doing both is to build, build, build to actually build a supply of housing, both subsidized and market rate.
1: You've had some setbacks, haven't you, in terms of the density at which you
0: can. Uh, no, Los Angeles. There is a state conversation on that, and there is some state legislation that didn't go through. But Los Angeles is actually, we're about ten percent of the state population in California. We're building twenty percent of the housing. We've gone on a tear that is the most housing built since the mid nineteen eighties, and the second most in our history. So we're finding a good pace, but remember we're not an island so getting other cities that are around us because today the modern city isn't just about one municipality it's all those surrounding suburbs to do their fair share is a critical piece and then secondly it's really you know if you or i had a broken leg in los angeles we would go into the hospital emergency room and be seen but if you and i were both facing an addiction or a mental health problem probably neither of us would be seen and that system can't sustain if we're going to also solve this problem of homelessness and so that national leadership and, and statewide leadership in California is absolutely critical if we're not going to just triage on the street.
1: And you have been targeted by activists as far as getting saying you should be removed from office. I'm sure you're aware over the homelessness crisis, something you cannot handle it. What is your message to them? Are they being unreasonable in what they're asking of you? Are they misunderstanding the scale of the challenge or are there bits of the challenge where looking back at your record, you also feel you've fallen short?
0: Well, a lot of things in that question. Uh, it, it, to be clear, those weren't uh, homelessness activists or anything who I've worked very closely with, but um, some very politically conservative folks who decided right. to kind of uh, make a name for themselves and, and, uh, and launch a recall, which I'm confident that we can uh, defeat. And I'm not, you know, I take everything seriously, but I, I'm not too worried. I have too much work to do to let that consume me. I think, you know, it's interesting. There was an article in the Los Angeles Times last week saying this problem persists, and yet Los Angeles is seen as a model. So how do you live with this contradiction where people are coming from around the country now saying L.A. has the best practices, has more money, more policies aligned with this, but it's still an ongoing problem? And I think my message is that this is never going to be solved just at the local level. I'm immensely proud of our reaction. I'm immensely proud of two measures we've passed that are $3.5 billion that didn't exist on this issue. Getting criticized is part of being mayor. That's life. I'm not worried about that. that uh, probably Which criticism
1: would- that you get worries you most?
0: They don't. Uh, I don't think I don't read a lot. of. I don't read the praise or the criticism. And my philosophies don't live for the headlines of tomorrow, the criticisms of today. Think about 10 years from now. I've got a seven year old daughter and I I kind of view the city through her eyes. Because if you take the praise too seriously, you'll probably get caught up looking yourself in the mirror. And if you take the criticism too seriously, you'll get paralyzed.
1: Let's look at a related topic, and that's rent controls. Do you think they've worked in Los Angeles? And would you like to expand them?
0: No question. We don't have what's formally called rent control. We have a rent-stabilized or uh, system, which allows people- That's rent control
1: st- with a good marketing campaign.
0: No, it's a little different. Rent, rent control is formally somebody moves out and the new person gets the same rent. In Los Angeles, if the person stays in there, it can only go up a certain amount each year. But as soon as they leave, it goes to market rate and it starts again for that new person. And with the average apartment turning over two and a half years in Los Angeles, it's essentially the market rate. But if people won't face ten and twenty percent increases that kick them out, so it's been immensely successful in that sense. About um, uh, three quarters of our apartments are under that rent stabilization ordinance, and it's helped people stay there uh, that otherwise might be on the street or be kicked out. Flip side is you don't want to do things so stupid that it dries up the marketplace from investments. But I think well, that Bruce- would
1: be our challenge. I'll just mm-hmm. cut across yeah, sure. a, a, a you if I could at this point because that's something in which the economists obviously, while being very keen to address the homelessness problem and also the fact that even those who are not homeless are finding it difficult to find appropriate accommodation in a lot of American cities. The problem is we would see it would be that once you kind of have a price ceiling, you reduce the supply to to the market. You also have less incentive to fix up and rent out your basement if you're lucky enough to have a a spare one or or to build a, a rental property. So you get a kind of slower growth built into the model well, those who are happy to have the stabilized rents will take them, but you haven't really addressed the kind of pipeline well enough. What would your answer be to us? Uh,
0: uh, you know, the, the slippery slope arguments always, I think, go way too far, and there's a place in between those two things. And a completely unregulated market costs us a lot. For instance, in Los Angeles, when somebody could increase the rent by 50% each year, look at the homelessness crisis and how many billions of dollars it's costing us. And there's no question that people I talk to on the street Literally couldn't make the rents and started living in their car and now are in tents. Uh, on the flip side, I completely agree. You can't cap things and expect there to be investments. But in Los Angeles, we actually have that balance, and we're pushing also for state legislation in California to say let's have an anti-rent gouging ordinance. That's different than a rent stabilization ordinance, but we should have a limit on how much. And trust me, you know I, I'm a, a landlord. Um, you know while I'm living in the official residence, you know we rent out a house, and you can make money in this market unquestionably and you don't have to raise rents by 20 or 30%, the social cost costs us all. So I would just say, how much do you want to pay? You want to be an absolute free marketeer and pay a whole bunch to solve the social ills? Or do you want to find a balance in between? I think that's much better.
1: Let's uh, look to politics at the moment uh, in the U.S. and 2020. Yeah. It feels like we were tw- kind of 2020. We've been in 2020 for about six months already, and we're going to be in 2020 before we get there in terms of the buzz uh, around the, the nomination. Now, at one point, you seem to be flirting with a run yourself. What held you back?
0: My heart and my job and my family were in the city that I love, and I think being a mayor is probably the best job in politics. I very much wanted to change the president, but I also realized... I couldn't pursue the presidency and do a good job. I would have been very guilty on the road in Iowa when something was happening in my city, and vice versa. If I was in my city, I'd Come be like, hometown, boy. "Why I wasn't in Iowa?" <laughs> exactly. And you know, President Clinton once said famously, "The two best jobs in American politics are president of the United States and mayor of a big city." Well, I have one, and I'm I'm not one of these people who plots my political future too far um, ahead. I really think you should finish what you're doing. You wouldn't
1: rule out a future run.
0: No, but I also don't necessarily have my plans set to do it. I think uh, do a good job in what you have, and the future will take care of itself.
1: And who are you backing?
0: Nobody yet. Nobody yet. I love. This is the time to say it. I love the Cal. Yeah, here it is, the exclusive.
1: All right, whose campaign have you thought? Even if you're not committing to supporting them fully that has raised the right questions for you as a mayor? I have
0: some very deep and close relationships. Cory Booker and I studied here in Britain together. He was the first person to greet me when I arrived in this country in 1993. Kamala Harris is a dear friend who I campaigned with to get a very underdog senator, elected president named Barack Obama. And um, Joe Biden helped me raise the minimum wage and has been a, a, a dear friend. And Pete Buttigieg, a fellow mayor, and I have worked hand in hand. So, you know, those four people I know the best. That said, I'm being a good mayor and a good Californian. We matter in a way that we never have before. So we're like acting like we're Iowans. We're like, tell us what you're gonna do to help us in California. Don't just take our money uh, with donations. But, uh, and for me, it's homelessness, the environment and infrastructure and immigration. Tell me in those four areas, what you're actually gonna do for my state because my vote is gonna depend on what you do. And with that in mind,
1: all right. I mean, and and I am just going to to the extremes here. Are you more a Bernie or a Biden?
0: I'm not a – I'm actually not a um, – and I think it's a mistake to approach. I'm not a spectrum person when it comes to presidents. I think people elect presidents based on how you choose a parent. You know? We're electing mother or father, and it's much more emotional. Who do you trust? Who do you think can win? I think for the first time, I'm so proud. Democrats say they will pick who can win over who is closest to them ideologically, and I think I feel the same way, even though I'm very proud of being a progressive and I'm – You know, I think my record is pretty close. You know, as I said, free community college, we've made the raise the minimum wage, cut business taxes, by the way, at the same time, leading the way on the fight against climate change. So I'm pretty, you know, left, proud, progressive, but I want who will win and who can still reflect our values enough to make sure that we don't have four more years of this president.
1: Well, with that in mind, I was thinking about Los Angeles, the sanctuary city argument How useful do you think that has been as clearly the matter of immigration and the the treatment of migrants at the border has divided the country? What is the right place for a progressive city to be? And what is is too much? Because I know that you do argue about, intelligently argue about what people find to disturb their view of their lives or what they find to be too challenging or too quick in terms of integration. What have you learned about that?
0: I'm not worried about that. I think our strength in Los Angeles has proved itself. Our pluralism is why our economy is outpacing the country. It's why we won the Olympics when the world wonders if America cares about it anymore, etc. But my argument gets very kind of uh, traditional. I say, if you're pro-family, you should be pro-immigrant instead of separating families. If you're pro-economy, when over 60% of the businesses on my main streets are founded by immigrants, you should be pro-immigrant. And if you're pro-public safety, and this is one the president should listen to carefully, you should be pro-immigrant. Because for 40 years in Los Angeles, we've said our police won't participate in civil deportation or civil actions on immigration. And I'll tell you what, just uh, Christmas ago, two Christmases ago, we had a police officer shot in Los Angeles, and while she was bleeding, and she survived, thankfully herself an immigrant from South Korea in an area that there was a lot of undocumented immigrants, they trusted LAPD so much within a half hour they had said who it was, where to find him, and a would-be cop killer was behind bars because of the trust that we have. So we protect immigrants because they protect us, like my grandfather who served in World War II. So I think you have to approach it from those places rather than just this kind of left-right. We know that they're the strength of our economy, of our families and our communities.
1: But it's an argument you have to win, and Democrats are divided on... The question of providing health care for undocumented immigrants, for for example, some are keen to offer full access to health care benefits is certainly an argument about younger people. Would they benefit from it in a way that will also immediately benefit the wider cohort? The gains are are well understood of doing that, but it does appear to be dividing a lot of Democrats. Where do you come out on that?
0: I think, look, if you have a, a parent who's undocumented with two U.S. citizen children, do you want that parent to be unhealthy? What's the cost to all of us going to be for that child if that parent misses work, loses their job, and these children have to What about a family of undocumented working?
1: migrants? Because that—that's you'd already well, but, picked but, and chosen your example, strangely enough, for a ni- politician.
0: 90-plus percent of undocumented families have citizen children in them. So it's not the outlier, this is the norm. And I think it's, I'm glad you raised this point because most people do think it's a family of five all undocumented people. These are all blended families. The younger ones are almost always US citizens. And so if we're gonna invest in our future from a practical perspective, not just a moral perspective of that people deserve health care, which I believe they do, we're gonna pay for this one way or the other is my argument, and it, we're gonna pay for it more. You much don't see it more. becoming
1: a wedge issue in the Oh, there's no kind. question
0: people will exploit that, but you have to tell them, look, if that's what you're worried about and you're just a pocketbook person, I guarantee you what you're pushing for is going to cost you personally much, much more.
1: So you're happy to stand by – I didn't put you in your own words. No, absolutely. Full access to health care benefits for all undocumented migrants. Let's be
0: clear that most undocumented immigrants will buy their own health care. But for people who are poor and paying taxes, I don't think that your immigration status should be an impediment.
1: Let's talk about the Olympics, which you've got coming in 2028. I hope you're in training (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's never too late. <laughs> it's never too late, is
1: it? <laughs> you've just got to get out there with you a You can come flag, out too, <laughs>
0: 2028, you know.
1: <laughs> I'm inviting myself already. Now, you've said that it should turn a record profit. I mean, you've gone right out there. A lot of cities, we know, talking in London have had to figure out what they want from the Olympics apart from a, a great event. And if LA cannot put on a spectacular Olympics event, really, you know, the Chinese okay. business <laughs> should just uh, should shut up shop. A, a billion dollar profit. Wow. I mean, is that realistic? Uh, again, the economy. I you know, hate to be uh, occasionally to be a, a bit e- or to your ticket, but we've argued that hosting Olympics often doesn't work out as a great investment. And I
0: love those pieces, and I totally agree. And for most cities, it is an irrational thing to do. Los Angeles is different, and not because I'm mayor there, but the proof has been in the pudding. 32, we turned a million-dollar profit. 1984, I think it was uh, almost $300 million profit. So just adjust that even for day- today's term, and you're close to that billion dollars. And when people say, well, that's nice, you say that now, people forget that the Olympics are two different budgets. There's the operating budget and the capital budget. The operating budgets in Sydney, no Olympics have really lost the money because if you can't throw a two and a half week party for six plus billion, seven plus billion dollars, you're doing something wrong. It's that everybody decides to build a bunch of infrastructure. Well, we brought a model in which we're not doing that. We have to do a couple things with a track, a whitewater rafting, but otherwise, Los Angeles has the sports facilities to basically do the Olympics next week. The most expensive stadium ever built in human history not on the public dime at all, completely private dollars for American football which will open up in a couple of years. Our basketball arenas, we've got a velodrome, we've got all of the things that you need and we're not even building an Olympic Village. The other thing that usually jacks up the cost, we're using the campus of the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA. So I'm confident in those numbers. I'm confident that we will have hundreds of millions as much as I think billion a billion th- dollars We'll come back uh, in 2029 and compare notes. But the legacy of 84 has already been hundreds of millions of dollars in the foundation that we established from the profits that's gone into building fields, helping kids play sports. And by the way, one last thing is we're already profitable. We negotiated to go in 28, and we got $160 million up front from the Olympics. Nobody's done that. $16 million a year we get now that we're spending on the people of L.A., because so many Olympics say they're going to have a legacy, never do. I was going to say,
1: have. having covered a number of Olympic Games, I'm inviting myself. <laughs> right. At the end of 2028, 20, I'll be bringing my calculator. Absolutely. And a lot more knowledge uh, from and, some and of my people colleagues say, You're not come to the mayor,
0: I say I'll be worse. I'll be a taxpayer. So trust me.
1: <laughs> and You have an interesting messaging, really, about Los Angeles. In some ways, you want to face up to... The really big threats uh, you've said of climate change. We're not waiting for Washington. The cavalry isn't coming. You also have terrible wildfires, and we will watch those those images, and uh, you sat on the, in the edge of our, our seats watching you uh, dealing with that. So there is a sense that you are, you're in many ways, and literally, it is, is happens on a fault line with yeah. your great city.
0: Yep. I, the, in you know, I've, I founded Climate Mayors, a group of American mayors, Republicans, Democrats, and Independents, 425 of us strong now to implement Paris when Trump said he was going to pull our nation out of there. That's 49 states and 70-plus million Americans who are doing that work. I always I'll say, look through the eyes of a firefighter. Who's now on those front lines? Look at it through cities that are being flooded in the Florida Panhandle. This is real. This is going to be the fight of our lives, and our children are going to ask us, "What did we do?" There is nothing more important. And I'm here in London because I'm the vice chair of C40, the global network of mayors that are now kind of the peer pressure group, saying, "If you're doing electric buses, I better do it too. If you're doing building codes, I better do it too." And I want to be at the front of that line because I think uh, anything that feels ambitious today will seem pretty meek to our children 20 years from now.
1: You've studied. You've been here I was about to say, as a, a younger man, which makes you sound older <laughs> than you are. Uh, yes, so, so tactful, this show. <laughs> you were here in, in, in London. You studied in Oxford. You were a Rhodes Scholar. You were also a bit of a, a campaigner, an anti-apartheid protester mm-hmm. at that time. What do these outgoing American politicians learn from uh, uh, coming to the more, or at least formally, more reserved British culture? What did you take with you?
0: Oh, you know, I, l- I learned so much being here. I, I learned how to make a good argument, how to bring together a diverse group of people in a much more traditional political setting. I used to go up to Campsfield, which was a place for asylum, uh, a detention center for asylum seekers uh, with Amnesty International and others. And looking back, I realized back then that there was a tie between us, even the most distant places. While that was happening here, Prop 187 was passed in California in 1994. Uh, Which was an anti-immigrant measure, and I realized that it's true all politics is global, but you have to lay down your roots wherever you are locally. And I loved my time here because it showed me how to do that in another country, not to be afraid.
1: I've got to ask you last question about your love of jazz, and particularly the way that you've managed to bring it into your day job with the now tell me if i've got this right is this the 101 slow jam
0: <laughs> yes it was i was i'm thinking about
1: 101 dalmatians that's something completely no, it was different the 101 no, this freeway. is basically when you close a road and tell people uh, explain it by giving them jazz if you can pull that off you must be you know you've got the mayor. <laughs> i wanted a d- non
0: traditional way to tell people of a road closure so a great jazz band at one of our high schools and i did this slow jam and i told him that it was going to be closed and it worked well and we got more views than ever before. So you can't just uh, hold press conferences anymore as a mayor. You've got to be creative.
1: And what jazz prepares you for a task in office?
0: Well, I I have a piano in my office and, uh, you know... uh, I think anything from Oscar Peterson to uh, Keith Jarrett, some of the folks that inspire me. I love sitting down, not having an idea in my head and just improvising because it kind of mirrors what you have to do every day as I'm here.
1: Will you play for us if we come I over to LA? I would love
0: to. I would love to.
1: Eric right, Ossetti, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Great pleasure. Thanks.
1: And we'd love to know what you think. How should the politics of big cities shape the national dialogue, particularly on gun crime and immigration? And which politicians would you like to see wrap public service announcements? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And please do take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. We do keep an eye on it. And while you're with us, think about subscribing. Go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for £12 or $12. I'm Ann McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist.
0: Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse?